Well, the heart is what we're going to talk about this morning, and namely the heart as the target of parenting. Um, because many of you in here are parents, and so you know that every day in the life of a parent is filled with all kinds of activities, and depending on the age of your kids, all kinds of conversations. The tasks never seem to finish, right? From the moment your kid gets up, somewhere between 5 and 8 a.m., and then from there, you just it just never stops. That faithful parenting means feeding kids and housing our kids and clothing our kids, hopefully, at least while they keep them on. We try to provide just basic education. We give opportunities for our kids to learn responsibilities, to give them tasks through the day, responsibilities through the day. Just think about how much time is spent transporting our kids from point A to point B. Man, if you could add up the number of hours you spend just driving kids around the world, it's probably better not to think about. We get together with the friends. We help them get together with friends. We gather them up and bring them to church, to the gathering of the church. We coach their sports teams or watch their sports games. We encourage their friendships. And so when we talk about the heart being the target, we're not saying that none of those things matter. All those things matter. What we'll talk about is just the priority and how all those things are just sort of portals or mediums or means through which we observe and see and then try to speak to their hearts over time. We mean that our primary concern is the condition of the souls of our children in the midst of all those daily activities. Now, this is going to look different depending on the ages of your kids, that if you're just sitting there feeding your seven-month-old, that again, what it means to reach their heart is going to be very, very different. You're praying for them. You're interacting and engaging with them versus if you're sitting with your six-year-old or your 12-year-old or your 15-year-old. So the conversation is going to look different. The interaction is going to look different. But yet the prayer, the desire, the trajectory through all those years of parenting is for us to be instruments in God's hands in reaching their hearts. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. The heart refers to the inner person. Those are probably the biggest categories that Scripture gives us when it comes to the heart is inner person, outer person. Though our outer form is decaying, 2 Corinthians, the inner form, the inner person is being renewed day by day. It's one of the clearest contrasts in the Bible to inner person, outer person. That these are inseparably interdependent during our time on earth, meaning the body always matters, the soul matters, it's just the soul is dominant. And these two are inseparably interdependent. The soul is the causal core of our personhood. One of the things we'll talk about this morning is what rules your heart will rule your life, which is why we pray for the hearts of our kids, that God would regenerate and redeem and begin to transform that part of them. It is the seat of our affections, everything we love, everything we hate, all of our loyalties, all of our passions, all of our desires, Scripture teaches us, arise from the heart. It's the center of our worship, who we exalt, who we look to, who we run to, who we seek refuge in, who we trust, who we adore, what we're enamored by and captured by and captivated by. All that is governed 
by the condition of the heart. And it's the root of our behavior. It's the reason we say what we say. It's the reason we do what we do, is the heart. And so in all our work as parents, from a Christ-centered point of view, the target is not physical or athletic ability or success. And that's easier said than done. Because when you're sitting there out on the sports field watching your kid play, you're probably much more concerned with how well they play and how many goals they score or don't score or how many touchdowns they catch or throw or how many baseballs they hit versus strike out than necessarily their heart attitude as they do it. Knowing that we live in a culture that the stands are filled with people and are they looking and going, man, I really hope their hearts are pure today. Is that the thought for the team? When you watch that Arkansas-Duke basketball game last night, were you just concerned with, I just, I don't care how the game goes, just that their hearts are steadfast on the Lord. I mean, that's not how we think about those things. No, it's winning. It's performance. It's external. That's why the commentators aren't often reflecting on, wow, his attitude just doesn't seem to be very encouraging, you know, that, no, that's not, what they're, that's not what the highlight reel is about. The target is not academic condition and success. Again, it doesn't mean academics don't matter. It doesn't mean we don't encourage our kids to study. But it means that report card we're looking at, what are they usually not assessing? Not a whole lot of heart assessment. Usually the teacher lines don't, you know, I, Jimmy's grades are outstanding, but I'm concerned with the loyalties of his heart. That's never on the report card. If it's straight A's, then it's success. Or if it's straight C's, and yet from God's point of view, better to have straight C's with a heart that loves God and others than straight A's with a heart that loves self, lives for self. And it's just simply growing deeper in self-sufficiency, self-righteousness. So this is, it's hard to shift how we think, but what we'll realize as we go through this, this isn't about parenting, it's just about life. It's not just hard to think this way about parenting, it's hard this, to think this way about ourselves, about marriage, about everything. The target is not vocational condition and success. Though again, we're trying to teach our kids, train our kids, we hope they do get a job and work hard at it. But you know how tempting it is to get wrapped up in, okay, what trajectory are our kids on vocationally? What kind of career are they going to have? How much money are they going to make? What kind of retirement are we actually going to enjoy as parents? Is there ever going to be a time where they can actually support us? The target is not financial condition and success. The target is not social status. Again, how tempting it is to just want our kids to be popular to want them to be well-liked, to want them to be in the right social circles. The target is not political power. The target is not hygiene and cleanliness. Even though, okay, again, these are things that we're allowed to help them with. How to take care of their bodies, how to clean their rooms, how they But we just really, again, that's not the target. That's not the end point. That's not what we're ultimately aiming at.
And especially when you'll, you take passages where the Pharisees are going to come to Jesus and say, hey, why don't your disciples wash their hands the right way? And that's going to prompt Jesus to say, rightly does Isaiah prophesy about you. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Teaching as doctrines, the traditions of men. That's his response to that kind of thinking. <laughs> Is rightly does Isaiah prophesy about you that your hearts are rotten. And you're so concerned with the external. You whitewash tombs, yet they're full of dead men's bones. You clean the outside of cups, yet the inside, it's filthy. Well, again, that's Jesus talking to Pharisees, but that's also Jesus talking to parents about what are we praying to produce? What are we aiming to produce? That doesn't mean we don't have our kids clean their room. It doesn't mean we don't teach them to brush their teeth or dress in a way that is street legal. That's usually our rule at our house. It needs to be street legal. Like when you hit the road, we don't want people to run and scream. It's a low standard, you know, but we at least need to hit that. But it's realizing that that's outside of the cup stuff. What God is most interested in, okay, is a pure heart. It's a sincere faith. It's a clear conscience. The target is not them getting married and bearing children and living close by. Right? That for some of us, that, that would be, okay, that's the goal, right? That's the aim. Get them married. Get them bearing kids. Get them nearby. The target is not moral quality of words spoken. The target is not even moral quality of actions. This will be the hardest one for us to grasp. And it's not that that doesn't matter. It's that that isn't the target. Because ultimately, you can perform a lot of morally right actions. You can say a lot of morally right things, but your heart being far from. That's what we just talked about with Jesus. This people honors me with their lips. Their hearts are far from. Okay, you honor me with your traditions, your externals, but your heart is far from. So every one of these things we just mentioned, they're means or mediums through which the heart is displayed and by which the heart is sought after. They're downstream from the real target, the spiritual condition, the soul, the heart orientation. And so they're all part of the environment in which salvation takes place, the environment in which sanctification takes place. But they're not the focus of salvation and sanctification. They're not the meaning of it. This is why, again, in Jesus' day, everybody was so confused at who he was hanging out with. This guy, like, receives sinners, tax collectors. Look at who he's sitting with and eating with. So you'll see there in your handout, reasons for parenting the heart. Firstly, the heart is the wellspring of life. That's the first reason. Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. This is Solomon speaking to his son. Saying, son, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. That's the thing you're to guard to care about, the thing you're to be most concerned with, what you pour into it. Because from it, everything in your life will be watered. If you imagine in yeah, 9th century BC, 10th century BC, how important a well of water was to a community. 
Oftentimes they wouldn't even set up an area and live there until they found water. So they would dig, they would find water, they would establish a well, then houses would begin to, crops, animals. Everything watered from that well. So imagine if that well got contaminated, if it got poisoned, how much would it affect? It would affect everything. The crops would die, the animals would get sick, the people would get sick, the community would wither, all because of the condition of a well. And again, it's very tempting to think, okay, well, the water's bad. Let's just go around to all the little places the water comes out, every house, every field, and just put a filter system on it. Let's just try to filter the water, which is often, that's very tempting to do in parenting, right? So how do we help our kids see the condition of the heart and pray for God to intervene? It's okay, how do we filter everything? How do we just sort of quarantine the bad stuff, box it up, get it in a closet so nobody else sees even so that we don't see, so that we'll feel better. And yet that's not what Solomon is recommending. He's saying, no, go right to the source. Keep the heart. In some way, Jesus is going to say in Matthew 15, 18, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. And just what Jesus is saying there, that every thought, every feeling, every word, every deed comes out of the heart. And that's what makes the difference. That's what defiles. How many of us have heard to our kids, hey, watch your words? But how often do we say, hey, watch your heart when those words come out? That's what Jesus is after. He's not, hey, watch your, watch your language. It's, hey, that was in you. That's why it came out of you. And it's really tempting to think, okay, the stuff that comes out of us is for some other reason. Like the stuff comes out of our mouth, and what do we think? Oh, who, who taught you that word? Where'd you learn that? Who have you been hanging out with? You know what? You need to stop hanging around with those Hayes kids. You know what? You've been spending too much time with those Tartaglios. That's where you pick that up. It's just we immediately start thinking, okay, external influence not internal condition, that made that external influence so influential, that made that external influence such a big factor. Or we might think parenting, right? I I didn't raise you that way. Have we ever said that? I didn't raise you to talk like that. I didn't train you to treat others this way. All of those have this idea that the, it's something about the environment as opposed to, no, it's in there. It's the condition of the heart. And how many of us think it's so helpful when it comes out? How many of us go, well, you know, praise God, it came out. And so publicly. that Now we see more clearly what's in there. That's how God tends to think about it because he sees it. He always sees it. And he's creating situations and circumstances that create a kind of pressure that it comes out. 
And that can be a blessing to us as parents. So we don't panic, freak out, get mad, go into defense mode, go into just squash it mode. But actually, it's okay, this is actually helpful to see what's inside by what comes out of the mouth. Biochemistry is influential, childhood upbringing influential, peers are influential, school is influential, but they're not determinative factors. They're not causal factors. That Jesus was under all the same influences. He had all the same pressures on him. No one was more infinitely holy than his own parents than Jesus. No one was more infinitely set apart in holiness compared to his own siblings than Jesus. And so the factors that were pushing on Christ, even firsthand exposure to Satan himself tempting him, some high pressure, 40 days without eating, and then tempted to turn stones to bread. And yet still, without sin. Why not? Because of his heart. Because of his heart orientation, his loyalties, because of who he loved and how much. Second reason to parent to the heart is that the Lord wants the heart. The heart is the primary target of our parenting because that's the part of our children the Lord wants first and foremost. And this is something that is part of parenting and teaching is, hey, kids, this is what God wants from you more than anything. He doesn't need all your good behavior. He doesn't need all your perfect words. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need all your religious performance and activity. What he wants is you, your heart, your trust, your loyalty, your whole world to be oriented around him, which, by the way, is a lot harder than just your words and your actions. Because the Lord knows that if he has their hearts, he will have their bodies as well. Because where your heart goes, there your body goes. If he has their hearts, he'll get their time. He'll get their money. He'll get their possessions. He'll get all of it unto him. And so if our children learn to love the Lord their God with all their hearts, Deuteronomy 6, 4, then everything else that matters will follow. Because God knew that's why he's saying that to Israel in the wilderness. Okay, I'm about to bring you into the land, land flowing with milk and honey, all these vineyards you didn't plant, all these houses you didn't build. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the key. That's what's going to protect you from idolatry. That's going to, what's going to protect you from worldliness. That's what's going to protect you from everything else that really matters is if God has your heart. And often the Lord reproves his people for doing the right things with the wrong heart motivation. That's Psalm 50, 7 through 15, where God's going to say to Israel, hey, I don't reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. Because he's going to tell them, hey, you're, you're showing up here all the right times of the week, going through all the right motions, doing all the things, the letter of the law. What he's going to show them is, but there's no thanksgiving. There's no gratitude. Your heart isn't in it. And that's when God's going to say to them, hey, I own the cattle on a thousand hills. I don't need your animal, if that's why you think I do this. 
Every bird of the forest is mine. He said, if I were hungry, I wouldn't feed you. So when you come and bring your offering and then offer it and sit down and eat as if having fellowship with me, you don't think I'm eating too, right? It's just the things that we don't think about. So what God is going to say, no, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. It's going to be what he's going to say in the middle of Psalm 50 and at the end of Psalm 50. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving. That when you bring that offering to the temple, to the tabernacle, and you bring it to be laid on that altar, realize you're putting your heart on that altar. That's just an expression of your worship, of your gratitude. He said, because I don't need the animals. If I wanted a cow, I'd go get my own cow. If I wanted sheep, I'd go get my own sheep. It's all mine anyway. And I've used this illustration before, you know, that we know this as parents is every year at Christmas, I get gifts from my kids that I bought. Right? Every year. I look under the tree and there's all these gifts from my kids to me. They don't have money. I know who paid for all that. And it's their mom that helped them go get it. And so I don't need the gift. And a lot of times I'll open that gift and it's not something I would have bought for myself. But that's not what I'm after. What am I after? Their heart. So as that kid holds out that gift and I open it and it's this Barbie doll set that she just knew we'd just have a great time doing this together. And she's just beaming. That's what I want. Like, great gift. One of my kids could have bought me a yacht. And if they just sit there and just throw the keys, I go, there you go, Dad. I knew you'd want a boat. I go, you know, keep it. I'll go get my own. That's what God is saying to Israel in Psalm 50. He said, what I'm after is you. It's your heart in it. And that's why, we'll get to it especially later, that's why just at the dinner table or wherever it is, that's why gratitude and thanksgiving is so huge. And teaching and drawing out in our kids what it means to have a thankful heart. It isn't about just making our lives easier as parents, though often that's what motivates us, right? If we could just get through a meal without grumbling or some complaint about the food. But to see whatever that is in the heart, that God thinks that is a universal, massive problem in the human condition. And it's something that is woven through the whole storyline of Scripture. Even in Romans 1, it's the root of all false worship, is a refusal to give God thanks. And so that's a big deal. Helping our kids see the meaning of thanksgiving from the heart. And how it is one of the most primary and basic expressions of worship toward God they'll ever know is to be grateful. And therefore, what we're trying to train them in our homes and being grateful is not about us being happier because they're thankful for us. It's preparing them to worship. It's helping them see what real worship is. A heart posture of continual gratitude toward God and thanksgiving toward God. In Zechariah 7, 4 through 6, Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me. Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you feasted 
Or when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, this is when they're in exile. Was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? So they've just come back from exile and they're asking through the prophet, hey, do you want us to keep doing that whole fasting thing? That whole praying thing we did in exile those 70 years that you wanted us to do and that we did for you? And God, through Zechariah, says, well, hold on, was that for me? Okay, I didn't notice. I thought it was for you. And what he's getting at is their heart in that for all those years was just, well, God told us to do this, here we go. It was just for them to check the box off, for them to feel better. So here's God saying, yeah, you did it, but not really. You didn't really give me what I wanted which was your heart in it. The implications, I think, for parenting are huge. That the Lord does not want our children to grow up and just learn how to play the Christian game. Just how to perform it. And this is tempting for us because even we as parents might be satisfied with that if they just look the part. Or at least look the part until they're out of my house, then I don't have to feel responsible for if they blow their life up after that. Or whatever weight we might put on just looking like a Christian, acting like a Christian, talking like a Christian, doing Christian things, and yet their heart is far from God. Now, what we'd rather have is their lives blow up, unravel, go completely off the rails, if that's what God is going to use to really get their hearts. And think about how many testimonies, that's exactly how God gets the heart. Is we light the thing on fire and burn it to the ground and realize, oh wait, I was wrong. And that that's what God actually uses to bring us to, to real repentance. To really seeing our need for God. Yeah, Jesus warned about praying, giving, fasting to achieve the praise of man. Matthew 6, 1-18, through 18, right in the heart of his Sermon on the Mount. He's going to warn about that. Be careful practicing your righteousness before people to be seen by them. And that needs to be part of our thinking as parents when we help our kids come and gather and be in the church. And they're wiggling around and they're distracted and they're sleeping during the sermon. There's a part of us that just wants to, hey, quit embarrassing us. Like, clean this up. Or are you thankful, okay, this is what they think of God right now. This is what they think of the preaching of the word. And should it shock us for non-Christians to be bored? For non-Christians to struggle to see the point? And so again, it isn't that we don't bring our kids here. It isn't that we're not training them or teaching them, but we're always keeping a view to, but it's the heart God wants. And so the sleeping part, it's not about stay awake. It's about, okay, do you see how God's word doesn't compel you, doesn't move you, doesn't stir you, doesn't interest you? And this isn't to shame you or guilt you, but just in the privacy of conversation, helping them see, do you realize that this is where you you need a, a new heart or a changed heart, an awakened heart? And as I said earlier, that's not just for kids, that's for us. 
Psalm 51.6, he desires truth in our innermost being. This is David's psalm of repentance after his sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. Where he knows, God, you desire truth in the innermost being. Not just sprinkled on the top, but right deep down inside us. The sacrifice that he wants, Psalm 51, 15 to 16, is not merely external, but internal. Spiritual devotion. Romans 12, offer to God right, your, your body as a living and holy sacrifice. That is our spiritual service of worship. Thirdly, a new heart brings new life and forever. That's another reason we parent to the heart. Jesus in John 6, 15, 51, this is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So not physical bread, but his body broken, his blood shed. That's the bread from heaven. And to eat of it is to believe it, to receive it, to trust Christ and his body, his blood for their salvation. And so every meal is a kind of picture of that. Sometimes you'll sit at the table and if, especially if you've got teenage boys, they will eat as if they're about to die, even though they just ate four hours ago. It's like wolves devouring a corpse. And even that picture is, hey kids, that's nowhere near as important is the bread of life in here. And that physical feeling you have, multiply that by a billion, that's the spiritual need you have for Christ. And so that's why you love how God, you go through the word and just how many of the images that he gives us that are references to salvation, how simple they are, how basic they are, just water. And it doesn't mean every time your kid asks for a glass of water, you have to say, you know, you know what? Let me give you a lesson about the water of life. But at some point, you help them see the connection. It doesn't mean every time they sit down and have a meal, you've got to connect it to the bread of life who's Jesus. But at some point, you can make some of those connections. When they wake up in the morning, you know, David in Psalm 4 said, I arose this morning and I awoke because, Lord, you sustained me. That David thought, the reason I didn't die in the night is because God decided. And those are all connection points we can make for our kids, just to create God awareness, spiritual mindedness, heart attentiveness, that this is what God wants. Philemon 1, I love this, where Paul is talking to Philemon about Onesimus, who had stolen money, run away, run into Paul, had been, had, Paul shared the gospel with him, and Onesimus came to faith in Christ. Now Paul's sending him back to Philemon. He says, for this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. What a statement. So, yeah, so Philemon, him stealing that money from you, him running away, all the trouble that caused your family, all the heartache, all the issues, him, this whole journey to Rome, maybe all that was by the providence of God for his salvation so that you could receive him back now as a brother. 
and forever. And so again, that's, the implications for us in parenting are important. It means we can't cling so tightly to every one of our kids that we can just strangle them into heaven. We'll just so control every aspect of their life that we're just going to force them into heaven. When even here we see you know, Philemon had to lose Onesimus to gain him. And so just room for the providence of God because, again, it's heart work, not just behavior work. The things that have to be reached, we can't reach. That only God can reach. And we don't necessarily know the means that he's chosen to do that. I think we'd love for it to look pretty. But how many stories in the scripture don't look pretty in terms of how God's going to get his people? Difficulties in parenting the heart? I think, firstly, the heart is invisible. That's the first difficulty. We don't see it. We can't grab it and control it. We can't measure it. We see evidence of it. We hear the spoken words of our children. We see the external behavior of our children. We watch them on the field of sports. We read their report cards. We smell their clothing and their rooms. The affections of their heart, however, are harder to discern. Those run a little deeper. Their loves, their loyalties, their desires, their fears, their passions, and faith must be drawn out. You just think of, you know, if you walk in a room and one of your kids just punches one of your other kids, just smacks them. Usually what's the first question out of our mouth? If we're going to ask them a question, what is it? Maybe who started it? You know, why did you hit your brother? Why did you hit your sister? If we walk in and they are serving their brother or sister, like helping put their shoes on, do we usually ask the same question? Why are you doing that? Initially, we usually don't, but God asks both. Why did you do that? And why did you do that? Because he really is interested in that kind of motivation and what compels all behavior, what compels all words, the good-looking stuff and the bad-looking stuff. So the heart is invisible, and that makes it hard to parent to the heart. It's also hard to reach. Our kids don't usually volunteer the contents of their hearts, right? At the age of eight, you know, Dad, I've really been struggling a lot these days with anger on the inside. I know you can't see it on the outside because I stuff it. Usually that's not what we're going to get, right? We're not usually going to say, you know, I'm really struggling a lot with anxiety. I'm struggling a lot with envy, with jealousy, with pride, with arrogance, with wanting other people to praise me and honor me. And it's usually not volunteered. We have to help draw them out. There's layers of defenses. There's usually ignorance, but this isn't, again, this isn't just a kid thing. This is a grown-up thing. Most of us don't volunteer it. And once we see the loves, the loyalties, the desires, the fears, the passions, the, their faith coming out in words, in actions, and relationships, it still takes a lot to reach those and talk about those and change those. To actually help our kids see the reality of their heart condition and their need for that part of them to be changed. 
Sometimes it's worth, I think, asking our kids, hey, kids, what do you think your mom and I are trying to change about you? What do you think your mom and I are trying to reach in your life? And depending on their age, can, are they beginning to articulate what you're after? Or do they think if they just behaved, it'd be all right? If they were just polite, if they just, for the love of God, would look an adult in the eyes when they're speaking to them. Just that simple at the age of, well, I won't, you know, 15, 16, 17. Just be able to greet somebody in public. Be able to hold a conversation. Is that what they're going to think? Yeah, that's what you really want from me. You just want me civilized, polite. Or were they beginning to realize, no, I think what you're after is what God is after, and that's my heart, my inner person, what I love, what I serve, where I run for help. Third reason this is difficult is the heart is slow to change. Because sometimes undesirable behavior can be changed within an hour, especially depending on the ages of kids. And the younger they are, sometimes the more malleable their behavior is. You really can train them, discipline them, and change certain behaviors pretty quick. Bad words, they really can be washed out with a bar of soap. Never to be spoken of in your presence again. Doesn't mean they're never saying it. They may say it more than they ever have. But from your point of view, it can be washed away. It can be sanitized. A room can be cleaned up. Grades can be improved. We can get our kids to church services every week. Bible verses can be memorized and recited. But to change who our children put their hope in, who our children trust for their salvation, who they run to, in a time of trouble, to change who they worship and how much, who they love and how much, whom they ultimately serve and how joyfully, who they run to in a time of need, to actually transform how they respond to suffering and who they cry out to in suffering, how they respond to failure, how they respond to their sin, how they respond to the sins of others, how they respond to rejection, to correction, to temptation. I mean, that kind of change, that kind of transformation, that doesn't happen overnight or even in a year. That's a whole lifetime. And what we get with maybe the first 17, 18, 19, 20 years is just a window. It's just a part of that journey. And so there's so much of this kind of parenting that is in faith. It's purely in faith. You're trusting this is what God tells us to focus on. This is what God tells us to talk about. This is what God tells us to pray for. This is, these are the connections God wants us to make. And this doesn't mean that we hit the runway at 18 years of age. We're about to launch them, and it's just this perfect, pristine, private jet about to take off. I mean, it... It may look all over the place. But did we, in faith, plant the seeds that God wanted planted? Water what he wanted watered. 
Which brings to a fourth reason it's difficult, and that is that the heart is not tangibly rewarded in this life. Not usually. That when the Lord takes a man or woman for himself and sets them apart for redemptive worth, even places them into service for his glory, often the circumstances of their lives grow worse, not better. The acclaim of the world is going to dissolve. Hard work is often rewarded. Physical beauty is often rewarded. Conforming to the world is often rewarded. But a heart committed to Christ usually isn't. It's not in the world. You know, Moses is going to leave Pharaoh's household, leave the wealth, leave the prestige, leave the power, leave the glory, leave the pleasure. Leave the success, all because, in the words of Hebrews 11, he was looking to the reward. And that reward wasn't the wilderness where he's going to die. That reward is glory. It's the presence of his Redeemer. So how might we help our kids see expressions of their hearts? Any questions or comments before we keep going? Anything could be a question, could be a reflection, something that stands out. We have to go quickly through these and really take these. This list of helping our kids see expressions of their hearts is just examples. We don't have the time to go into all of them deeply. So as we already said, we help our kids be diligent at school. We help them work hard in their sports if they've committed to sports. But only if we keep perspective. This is the perspective we're talking about. That faith working itself through love in the midst of their pursuits is the critical thing. And what all that time with your kids is going to do is just expose what's going on in their hearts. I've heard people say, you know, that sports is a great teacher of character. I think that's completely wrong. It exposes character. It doesn't teach it. God, his word, the gospel, those teach character. Life in the world exposes it. Now, God can use many circumstances, many conversations, many experiences to shape character. But usually it takes God's word to do that in the midst of it. And so one big expression is just pride and humility, helping our kids learn to see pride and humility when it comes out. James 4, why are there fights and quarrels among you? Is it your, not your desires that wage war in your members? And what he goes on to say after that is God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. In other words, that quarreling that's happening between your kids is not a communication problem. It's a pride problem. And we have to help point that out to them. And that peace and restoration and harmony in relationships is a result of a humble heart. And the reason it's important is so now as you enter that room and that conflict is going on between your kids, that quarreling is happening, we don't just say stop it. We don't just give them techniques for, okay, here's the best way to talk about it where you won't fight. We have to help them see, hey, do you realize where this is coming from? Here's what God says through James 4. Why are there fights and quarrels? 
It's your desires that wage war on your members. And those desires are waging war on you because your heart is proud. It's your kingdom come, it's your will be done. It's me, me, me. I love myself. I have my picture on my shelf. That was a song that our kids learned early. But it's not just that we point out the negative. We say, okay, and here's what a humble heart produces. A humble heart that sees need for God and for Christ and asks for help and is willing to serve, is willing to yield, is willing to sacrifice. Actually love for this other person. We just had this for a couple of our kids that I love how God does it. But one of our kids decided they wanted a, a popsicle and asked if they could get a popsicle. I said, sure. And do you want to ask if... Your sibling here who's sitting with you would like one as well. And that child went, oh, yeah. Are you going to ask? Yeah, do you want one? Yeah, I'd love one, the sibling says. So that sibling goes out to the freezer and finds that there's only one popsicle left. Just the providence of God. <laughs> so that sibling came back into the room a couple minutes later and looked at the sibling and said, I'm so sorry, there was only one left. And I looked at him and said, what are you going to do? And that child looked, what do you mean? Well, it seems like you want one, your sibling wants one, there's one left. And he starts licking it. <laughs> huh, do you want it? Then offers it to the sibling. And so even to show there just... Years into this, these moments that come that go, okay, is, is the impulse to serve, to give, to defer, to yield? There's one left. There's two of us that want it. You have it. And so that became the conversation. Like, why doesn't it even cross the mind? Not just for you, for any of us. Why are we so prone to think of self first. And so even in that moment, there's the connection. Okay, what does humility do here? What does pride do? And that's not a behavior, that's a heart thing. Idolatry and worship. Colossians 3, 1 through 10 even, that sexual immorality is not firstly a body problem, it's an idolatry problem, an idolatry of the heart problem. So we cannot rely on mere rules of conduct and physical boundaries to protect our children from sexual sin because it's a worship of the heart thing and the scripture so often connects those two. What that means is we put up guards against pornography in our homes because our kids won't have the wisdom or the spiritual maturity to resist and because exposure to pornography can introduce all kinds of darkness and immorality into the heart. But we have to realize, okay, that's not the main problem. Just guards, filters, behavior. But the problem is in there. And so helping our kids see that what sexual immorality is fundamentally about is false worship and idolatry. And that's what God is after. So with all the filters, all the guards, all the safeguards, or even if we have a son or daughter who struggles with it, we help them see this isn't just a, a body, external behavior thing. This is a heart worship thing. And that that's what God wants. That's what he's after. And so what does repentance really mean? What does a road forward really mean? Yes, yeah, self-sufficiency versus dependence. 
Genesis 3, 1 through 7, that's what so much of that temptation in the Garden of Eden and that sin was about, was we want to be like God without God. We want independence, self-sufficiency. Defiance, rebellion, and obedience. Hosea 4, 1 through 3, I'm just going to point out this is about loves of the heart. This is about love for God versus love for self. That's what obedience and rebellion really exposes. And so how do we help our kids see the connection between rebellion and what they really love? Obedience and what they really love from the heart. <clears throat> Unrepentance, defensiveness versus contrition, repentance. This is one that I know with our kids, we try to spend a lot of time on. Because we tell them, you know, kids, you're sinners, we're sinners, we're going to sin. We're going to do selfish things, proud things, angry things, sinful things. That isn't the main issue. The main issue is your heart being repentant. Sin grieving you. Learning to mourn sin. Learning to see sin for what it is before God and actually feel the weight of it. And so we, in our house, were much more concerned with defensiveness than sinfulness, if that makes sense. Because the sinfulness, we're not gonna avoid that, but the defensiveness, the self-righteousness, the excuses, the blaming, that's where we spent more of our time. Because for us, that was the deeper heart thing. That was the thing where God's grace was most needed. Same with, yeah, next one, self-righteousness and justification. I think we're masters of self-justification. And yet the gospel is all about rejecting our own sense of justification and going to someone else for justification. Going to another for right. And so, so again, helping your kids deal with justification and self-righteousness is all part of sort of preparing them for the gospel and preparing them for what the gospel has to say to them. That, yeah, that your righteous deeds are filthy rags. But there is righteousness that is available to you through the sacrifice of another. And so you have to renounce your self-righteousness, your self-justification, and look to him. In day-to-day -day life with your kids will provide so many opportunities for that to get fleshed out. Because we're all just instinctively defensive. Instinctively self-justifying. Instinctively self-righteous. Motivation and attitude... This is another one that we spend a lot of time on, where it's not about what you do, but why you do it. Like, yeah, even this weekend, it was, came that time, where it is every week, to actually clean the room, to actually get in there, and I don't know what happened during the week, or how, what 96 people came over and stayed in their rooms but the evidence was there. So it's time to clean the rooms, and we hear them up there, and coming from both rooms, boys, girls, there's, there's arguing about the cleaning. Who's cleaning more? Who's cleaning harder? Who's being more productive? Whose stuff it really is that's everywhere? Who actually left it? And so multiple times through this whole episode, there's having to be conversations we're having about just motivation, attitude, how do you serve with cheerfulness and gladness, but that that's a heart thing, not just a behavior thing. 
So how about if we stop and we pray and we ask God to, to change the heart, to deal with attitude? And usually we'll get a good solid six or seven minutes out of that before it's right back to where it was. But what we're not wanting is, and it's tempting, is, okay, there's a new rule. You're going to clean your rooms and no one's allowed to talk. has to be absolute silence. And I promise you, though, if I went up, we didn't make that rule. But if we did, and I went up and stood in the doorway, I bet I'd see. They'd be communicating, just non-verbally, all the anger they're feeling. And again, it's realizing it's not just about them, but even when you see that, I have to go, okay, that's what I look like to God often when he tells me to do stuff. That's how I often look before him when he says, hey, here's, clean this up. Take care of this. Walk this way. So even in our kids, we're just seeing a reflection of the same need that we have, and that's important so that as we're dealing with those hard issues with our kids, we're not dealing it from a distance. But we're saying, hey, kids, we need the same grace you need. We need the same help from God you need. We need the same spirit working in us that you need working in you. But it's realizing all that external behavior of cleaning, what God is really after is the heart, the motivation, the attitude. And we talked already about the gratitude and the grumbling I mean, that's, I find a big one. One of the great expressions of heart condition in our kids is just thanksgiving versus complaining. Gratitude versus grumbling. Even in the hard circumstances, I would even say especially in the hard circumstances. We're still learning. How do we, when suffering comes, learning to look at God and say, Lord, thank you, this is good for me. I know this is from you. I know this is going to be through you. I know it's ultimately going to be for you and for my good. I know that you're a perfect father. You know what I need better than I know. You're my shepherd. I lack nothing. And whatever pain or trouble you bring, you're going to use it for my good. Use it for your glory. And so I'm going to trust you in this. How long does it take us to get to a point where that's how we think about pain or trouble or suffering? Well, even how much more for a 12-year-old, a 9-year-old? And then helping our kids understand how their hearts change. We've already talked about this in a lot in previous weeks, so we won't spend a whole lot of time there. But Because the Lord doesn't just desire our hearts. He's the one who actually redeems them. And it's in all these types of scenarios and situations that I just described where we're helping our kids see heart condition, what God really wants from the heart, what God desires in the heart. We're helping them see, and the only hope for that is the grace of God in Christ. That ultimately we realize as parents, we don't have what it takes to really give them what they need. We just have a message. We have a person that we're talking about, words that we're introducing. But that the Spirit of God has to take that on the other side and actually regenerate their hearts. Actually unite them to Christ. Actually sanctify them over time that the things that our kids most need are things that only God can give. And that's why we see our role with our kids as ambassadors for Christ, messengers of this message of grace, continually reminding, helping our kids see, could you see what's really in there? And do you see what you really need? 
And do you realize there's a God who loves perfectly, who sent a son to die in your place for sin, who you can cry out to, who you can seek, who you can pray would change you, transform you, grant you the forgiveness that you need. Through a hundred different means, a hundred different ways over all those years, that's what we continually come back to because we realize the heart is the target. few practical suggestions you'll see there in that last section. Number one, see words, behaviors, and responses in your kids as expressions of their hearts. It may seem obvious, but in day-to-day life, it isn't obvious. It takes training to see everything that comes out of them as from inside them. And that now becomes our source of prayer, the thing we're praying about the thing we're concerned about, the thing that we're desiring. And I've found that the more I grasp this, the more time I spend praying, just begging God for mercy and for help. Value the condition of their hearts over the condition of everything else in their lives. Again, it may sound obvious, but this is hard every day. When you're out at the soccer field, when you're at the swim meet, when you're at the baseball game, to actually be paying attention to their facial expression more than their batting average. Actually paying attention more to how they interact with their coach and other teammates relationally than how they field ground balls. Same with report cards. You just, you see the grades and you see the grades and think, oh my goodness, they're gonna be homeless. You see the grades and go, how are they gonna get into a school or let alone get a scholarship? Like, it's going to cost $500,000 to put them through college if that's what they want to do. We're going to have to pay extra given their grades. And just that's what you see. That's what you feel in that way. So it's so much harder to go, but what's, what's their heart condition? What's their attitude in it? What's, their, what's motivating and compelling them in it? Teach a theology of the heart to your children over time. So especially when you come to those passages of Scripture, if you're reading it at the dinner table, reading it at the breakfast table, talking about it on a Sunday afternoon, just when you come to those passages of Scripture that, where God really prioritizes the heart, where he explicitly points to that inner person, really focus there. And you'll have a lot of opportunities because it's everywhere in the Bible. We have to drive that point home with them. Yeah, draw attention to motivations, attitudes, emotional responses, not simply to behavior or outward performance. Use appropriate rules and discipline with your kids, but in order to awaken their hearts to their true spiritual need, not just to modify them, but to help them see what they really need. I think a big one is be patient with heart change. This is slow work. This is hard work. There's conversations we have with our kids that we've been having for 10 years. And I'm sure we're going to be having them for a few years more. Play the long game. So we're addressing the external stuff, the words, the behaviors, but only as symptoms. These are symptomatic. Not the root of it. Not the core of the struggle. Pray to create an atmosphere in your home where honesty about heart struggles is encouraged, where it's prized. Like, if you have kids coming to you just sharing what they're struggling with in here, oh my goodness, celebrate that. Praise God for that. Like any kind of confession, 
any kind of repentance, any kind of bringing to the light what is in the dark that you wouldn't have known if they didn't say it. Like, I mean, don't do full cartwheels right there. That may create a scene, but in your heart, do cartwheels. And in your words, be nothing but encouraging. Never attach shame or guilt to confession. The, usually the goal is to actually help them see the grace of God in such a way that that confession is met with forgiveness and encouragement and strength just to keep walking in the light. Keep, and so that, to me, that's the kind of thing we want to cultivate that kind of atmosphere in our home where honesty about struggle is really prized and encouraged. You have value prayer above every parenting strategy known to mankind. Value prayer more than, more than anything. Asking God for help. Asking God to reach and change things that only he can reach and change. But just be ready as you do. He, he plays for sure a long game. At least so much as we would call it a long game. And so as we pray, don't think for a minute that means, okay, by Tuesday morning, he'll have wrapped this thing up. No, he hears, he honors prayer, he listens, he responds, but his timeline is very different usually than ours. Any other questions, comments? Yeah, Danny? Yeah, and so I, <clears throat> so I think it's okay to have rules about words, about not to speak in anger or sharply or critically about one of your siblings. But then knowing that that rule, okay, it's going to expose, then when it comes out, a heart issue, because from the heart, the mouth speaks. And so there may be rules about cleaning up or cleanliness. There may be rules that you have about time to go to bed, Rules about shows and TV that you watch or don't watch. Rules about how much time you have screen time each day. But then knowing that, okay, just if they follow those rules, that doesn't necessarily, that's not what produces a, a heart that worships God. But what it will do is expose, you know, as soon as you say, okay, here's the amount of screen time you can have per day. Well, all you've done is invite what? A point of conflict. That's what you've decided to do. Here's, here's the line that we're going to have the skirmish over. Because what that's going to do is expose, because at least if they like having screen time, you're going to get to that two-hour limit or whatever it is, and what are they going to want? They want more. And they may even try to sneak around to get more. And so to realize, okay, that rule itself, it's arbitrary. There may be wisdom in it, but you made that up. And that's not wrong. It's okay. We'll talk a lot about this with discipline. But more than anything, what you've done is created a point where what's really in their heart is going to get exposed. And that's some of what the law was for, why God gave the law, entered into covenant with his people, gave them law that were sort of the terms of this covenant. And what's that law going to do? Just, it's not going to make them holy, but it's going to expose how unholy they are. It's going to expose what they really need. So that's kind of the idea. Anything else? Let me pray for us. 
Father, we are grateful for the way that you have loved us in Christ as a perfect heavenly Father. We thank you for your patience toward us. We are in awe of just your desire for truth in our innermost being, how you want our hearts, and you use all things to bring about you know, the good of our hearts. You redeem us and forgive us and unite our hearts to Christ through your spirit and fill us with your spirit and, and are ultimately going to bring us home. And so we pray that you would use us wisely in that very work in the lives of our kids. Help us to see the heart as the target. Help us to speak wisely in addressing their innermost being. And we pray most especially that you would do your great saving work in their hearts for your namesake, for our good in Christ's name. Amen.